Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Well, good evening. And welcome to episode 000117 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James. I'll be your host through to eight this evening, broadcasting to you from Radio City Docklands because the times call for it. And I pay my respects to the land from which I'm broadcasting on, and that is the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And I pay my respects to their elders past and present. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Thank you to Vaughan for an excellent episode of uh, Double Bounce. Um, I'm, I'm glad he's continued to carry on at Triple R now that he is a uh, tab television personality. If you missed uh, postcards last week on Channel 9, you would have vote, um, spotted uh, young Vaughan there, just laying it down for the people of uh, Channel 9 to pick up. So thank you, Vaughan, for gracing us with your presence once again. Also, very much thanks to uh, Vanessa and Beds for filling in over the last couple of weeks. I've been busy working on some projects that just uh, don't wait for anyone. So thank you very much to them. And it's very good to be back on the airwaves. We're going to be pushing through now through to Christmas on this show called The Mission. Um, it's good to be back, but uh, we have to admit these are very trying circumstances, uh, chaos and catastrophe everywhere. It can sometimes make you feel a little bit helpless, I guess. But I also guess the best thing we can do uh, and probably the most useful thing we can do is to make sure that our own little patches of the world are in good order. That means checking in on your friends and your loved ones, making sure they're doing okay and being generally kind to strangers when you come across them because you can't, you can be sure that they are going through some sort of struggle themselves. I mean, how can you not be at the moment? That's except, of course, for the people that uh, wear masks below their nose in supermarkets. Fuck those guys. So talking about uh, vaccinations, um, I thought I'd give you a bit of a snapshot because uh, it's a bit of a hobby of mine following this pandemic. So I thought I'd share it with you, the valuable mission listenership. Uh, so the chief medical officer, Paul Kelly, a very talented guy. He's not only a wonderful songsmith, but he's also, hang on. No, no, I'm just being told it's not that Paul Kelly. All right, well, anyway. Um, some interesting statistics coming out of New South Wales, and they apply to the efficacy of uh, the vaccinations. Of the nearly 6,000 COVID cases that were in New South Wales, um, less than 1% are fully vaccinated, uh, less than 3% are partially vaccinated, 4% uh, have been diagnosed within three weeks of their first dose. But I guess the, the most important issue is that no fully vaccinated cases have been admitted to ICU. So, you know, if you're thinking of getting vaccinated, get vaccinated. If you're not going to get vaccinated, then there's the numbers for you. So this being the mission, you're probably wondering, hey, Daniel, what does this mean for the vaccine rollout here in Victoria and across Australia and in terms of Aboriginal communities across the place? Good question, you. Well, it just so happens that the Australian Immunisation Register has released some numbers uh, for the first time, and um, these numbers are effective as of the 15th of August, so only a couple of days ago. Uh, we have 160 Aboriginal community-controlled health organisations across the country. Uh, we have 21 of them here in Victoria. Uh, we know that here in Victoria, 40,185 uh, Aboriginal people have received their first dose, dose 
and 21,117 have been fully vaccinated. So that's a vaccination rate of over 50% for our mob here in Victoria. And it applies similarly across the country. Um, 169,449 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders have received their first jab and 86,793 have received the second jab. So on paper, that looks good. looks like we're making progress. Um, And it's not surprising as far as I'm concerned. The Aboriginal community has always been very strong in terms of public health awareness and sharing the message amongst mob and, uh, and loved ones. But um, the major problem we have, of course, is that there is uneven distribution of the vaccine and in some areas where it is needed the most. One such area, of course, is the Western New South Wales Local Health District, where townships like Walgett, Burke and Dubbo exist, all with sizeable Aboriginal populations. Of the 116 cases in that area that are live cases, over half of them are Aboriginal so it's a reminder that the debacle that has been the vaccine rollout, the incompetence in and around it, uh, affects different communities in different ways and usually ends up having the greatest impact on lower socioeconomic groups the most. So what does this mean for you and I? Well, I guess if we want to have some power in this world, it means that we simply must continue to follow the health orders that have been laid down for us because the numbers here in Victoria are seriously on a knife's edge and we can't afford to let it go rampant across the community because it will decimate those most vulnerable, particularly my mob, and that's um, a mob that's suffered enough decimation as it is. So that's my message to you. Let's just continue to do the right thing. It is frustrating. It is boring. But we have Triple R, right? Yeah? That's what Triple R is here for. Coming up the Radiothon soon, so um, you know if you appreciate the work that uh, goes into this wonderful station, this wonderful community, uh, start thinking about how you can support us. Um, coming up on tonight's show, we check in with uh, Senator Lydia Thorpe. Uh, she's going to be on the line to talk to us about the recent uh, Closing the Gap report that was uh, spoken of and to and by the Prime Minister last week. Um, we're going to talk about also the fracking that has been approved around the 12 apostles, um, which just seems to be, you know, something that just doesn't compute with me, given where we are in terms of climate change and the dangers that we know that are ensue from uh, not only fracking, but mining generally, especially in uh, marine parks. Um, And I'll also talk to her about what life is like in the so-called Canberra bubble. She's been there for several months now, rattling the cage that is the uh, Australian Senate. So um, we'll have a chat to her about that as well. And in the second half of the show, we'll be joined by a fellow called Lionel Austin, who is the Preventative Health Manager at the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service. Uh, They're doing a great job rolling out the vaccine to mob there. So we'll find out what things are like on the ground and um, any messages and also get some idea of if you want to get a vaccine and you're part of mob, then we'll get that details for you. So stick around and stay listening. As always, the best way to, to get in contact with me is via my Twitter handle at Mr. DT James. This is the mission. It is good to be back. Stick around. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber... Hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Our first guest this evening is no stranger to the show. She's a Gunai Gundi Jamara woman and the Australian Green Senator for the state now known as Victoria. She's been a senator for a number of months now, so it's an opportune time to check in 
with the centre and talk about a couple of issues that are pertinent to her role and pertinent to our mob more more generally. And as her role as a, an activist, which is something that she will be until the day she dies, I'm pretty sure. So, um, Senator Lydia Thorpe, welcome back to the mission. Good to be back on the mission, as always. <laughs> Thank you for having me. No worries. Um, first of all, how how are you going with lockdown? I know that you're in Victoria because I saw you um, skyping in to um, to the Senate um, from from your offices here. How's how's things for you and and yours? Oh, you know, I think the toughest thing about uh, being a politician at home is home learning uh, and having a thirteen year old. Um, you know, who who likes to turn the camera off more often than I think her teachers would like. Uh, so that's probably my toughest competition right now, uh, and that certainly, you know, I feel I feel I suppose honoured that I have a bit more time to spend with my daughter, and I'm not stuck in Parliament House uh, where. You know, you're separated from your your kids for a long period of time. So I'm kind of seeing some seeing the benefits of of being in lockdown right now, rather than um, yeah the negatives because it it can get you down. And I feel very privileged to be able to have a warm house and a roof over my head, uh, and yeah, knowing so many other people just don't have that right now. Yeah, it's always very good to be able to keep perspective on, on where we are and um, you know compare ourselves to the to the less fortunate and have a think about how we can actually help them in the long longer term. Um, and you're in a you know tremendous position to be able to affect that. Um, you've been in you've been in the Senate now for for several months. So I can't remember. Maybe was it since January? Was it January? Nearly uh, a year. Uh, a year. I, I actually I became a senator in the first lockdown. So you're to blame. So, <laughs> well, I feel like I'm the expert senator in, of lockdowns because I <laughs> I became pre-selected in lockdown. I had to uh, build a an office and and recruit all my staff in lockdown, uh, and yeah, then enter the Senate after 14 days quarantine in Canberra. Jeez. So, so my first you, inquiry was the Aboriginal flag inquiry, and I did that all in lockdown in my hotel in Canberra. Gee whiz. So what's it like actually being in, in, in Parliament House and what uh, some describe as the, as the Canberra bubble? It's a, it's a, it's a very different world than, than you're used to, to mixing in, even though that you were a, you know, a state um, member in, uh, from the member from Northcote into the state parliament. What's, what's the Canberra experience like? Well, it's definitely a Canberra bubble um, and not a nice bubble. Uh, it's, it, it's about power. It's about patriarchy. Uh, it's, a, it's a true reflection of colonisation of this country. And it's not a nice place. It's very white. Um, and, you know, we have issues of um, sexual harassment and sexual assault assault and potentially, you know, worse things. Um, so it's a horrible place. I mean, you've uh, been I, there. You've been there comparatively about five minutes before you were subjected to um, uh, sexual harassment, yeah? Five minutes. Yeah. yeah. 
and I was I, I didn't expect that, you know. I, I didn't really see that in Victoria in my time, in my short time in the Victorian Parliament. There was a there was a kind of code, um, and maybe I don't know. Maybe it happened and I didn't see it. Uh, I'm not saying that it doesn't happen, but it certainly I didn't experience what I have experienced at the federal level. Um, I feel that people are more. Uh, really into themselves more than they are into their own communities that they're meant to be there to represent. Uh, And the patriarchy is a real problem. And, you know, talk about boys' clubs. Well, that's the biggest boys' club, you know, you could ever imagine. And their decisions are based around that boys' club. So Mm. uh, I have created a safe space for myself in my office, the black space, I'm calling it, of the parliament, and I've invited every traditional owner, if they ever come to uh, Canberra, to that to that place, then they always can, you know, hang out in my office, cook a feed, have the kids there. I've made it childproof and I've made it a black space where people can just have a rest from the violence of colonisation outside my door. Do you have a um, decent coffee machine in your office? Oh, they tried to introduce me to some, you know, new coffee thing that I can't um, use. So no, but <laughs> I have. We have this roster system in my office where we all buy each other coffees. So I'm pretty looked after in that regard. Yeah. <laughs> Got to have good yeah. coffee. Oh, you can't be a senator from Victoria and, and, and slum it on the coffee, I've got to tell you. <laughs> but I, look, there is one thing that I will let you all know about, and that's a little secret that I have that my chief of staff is really annoyed at. Um, I do like my toast extra um, cooked, almost charcoal. Mm-hmm. So yeah. when I cook toast in my office, I love peanut butter toast. Mm-hmm. When I cook it, the whole parliament, I think, can smell it. Yeah. and. I say to my staff, you know, it's all right. They must think that I'm doing some ceremony inside. They're not going to come knocking on the door. There's this just, just, just corridor. Just tell them it's secret women's business and you will not be harassed. Well, I'll tell you what, if I didn't have my peanut butter toast, I'd come out pretty angry or hangry. <laughs> All right, now let's get down. Let's get get down to business here, Senator. Um, last week, the Prime Minister Scott Morrison delivered the closing the gap report to Parliament, and he said the country's ultimate test is to enable every Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander boy or girl the same opportunities as any other Australian child. How do you think we're tracking against that ambition? Uh, I think it's lovely words and, and something to give hope to the people, but the reality is far from it. You know, the rates of uh, suicide and incarceration have gone through the roof under his uh, government's Closing the Gap program. Um, child removal has risen across the country. And, you know, we're talking about targets that won't achieve parity in imprisonment until 2093. I'll be dead. I won't see it. Not many of us will. Well, who's going to see that? What kind of difference is that going to make to our lives today? Mm. So I'm, you know, yes, there there were a couple of things that that came out that, um, you know, the trinkets came out, I think, 
but the the real action on closing the gap was was not even there, and that's what we need. We don't need more um, reports. We don't need more advisory bodies. We don't need more consultation. The evidence is there, uh, and it's damning, and they just need to um, prioritise the actions that keep us alive. Do you get a sense that there's a, a real determination up there to actually do something about this, or do you think it's just a case of uh, platitudes and the latitudes? Uh, I think it's a bit of both, to be honest. Mm. I know that there are good people that want to do good things, and I don't want to take that away from them. But their ideology behind that is not where it should be. And I think that's where they're getting it wrong. Um, you know, the the ideology of, you know, everyone should just, everyone's got the same opportunities. You know, why don't they just get up and have a go like everybody else? Well, that's the ignorance that we're dealing with in this country. And unless we address the symptoms of invasion and colonisation, then we're not going to ever close the gap. And so the priorities should be around uh, implementing the remainder of the recommendations into the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. It should be implementing the recommendations from the Bringing Home Report when it comes to removal of children. These are reports that have been sitting on their shelves for 20 years, 30 years. So why do we keep coming out with the same rhetoric uh, that's costing taxpayers trillions of dollars when the evidence is there, it's been there for a long time, we just need a government that's got the guts to act, actually act on it? Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, it's really, really um, fascinating, really. I mean, like you said, we do have these reports. We have royal commissions. We have uh, um, uh, judicial reports. We have reports up to our eyeballs that just simply haven't been acted upon. What, what is it do you think that, um, uh, you know, decision makers are expecting to change out of all this? I know that we have the 17, uh, you know, the 17 relatively new targets in terms of uh, closing the gap, and we have the coalition of, of peaks. Um, but it's okay to have those those targets, but I, I don't personally, I can't really see a, a strong pathway to actually um, meeting any of any of those targets. I know that there's a lot of activity taking place and that's to be applauded, but I, I can't myself see, and I hate the, I hate the use of this term, but I, I can't see the roadmap here. I can't see where we're going to get from where we are to where we need to be. Can you can you see that at all? Have you got any optimism on, on that front? Oh, look, I'm I'm trying to be optimistic. I really am. I'm trying to work with this government to make things better. I'm not always, you know, bashing them up. I actually do knock on their door and say, hey, you know, can we just do this a bit better? Can we just do that a bit better? And and sometimes I get wins in those areas. And I've seen that in the Closing the Gap um, report that they came, came out with. Some of my ideas are in that, which I mm -hmm. think are great, but it's not enough. You know, yep. funeral funeral uh, payments for uh, stolen gen 
uh, was our policy, was my policy, and that's because that's what I heard from the people. But the amount that they prescribed was not even close enough. So, you know, they take a little bit and they still come back with their trinkets at the end of the day. Uh, and it's not making a difference in community and it won't make a difference in community. And unless they allow true self-determination from those communities about what works for them, then they they can't close anything. You know, it can't yeah. be this top-down approach. And that's not just black fellas in this country, it's white fellas too. You know, they, they need to listen to the people on the ground. They're the ones experiencing... Um, the real life that these politicians, and I'm telling you now from first-hand experience, they don't know what real life looks like or feels like or is like because they haven't lived it. It, it does seem to me, uh, Lydia, that there, there has never been, you know, this is just the punter's perspective, but there never seems, there hasn't seemed to be as big a gap between the way you know, real people live and the, the political class that is is now residing in, in Canberra. And that, that's just an observation that I and others have, have made over, over time is like, how would they actually have a clue about how actually how to actually represent our needs and, and our wants and our desires? Because there just seems to be a massive disconnect. Oh, they don't. They have no idea. And even when I'm yarning to these people and I just talk like a real person, they... They they just look at me like I'm someone from another planet, you know. And when I question, when I say when I'm in a committee, um, and and we're dealing with uh, single mums writing passionate uh, personal stories to a committee that's asking them, please don't force us to go to a job network when we're trying to raise our kids, and then if we don't turn up, we get cut off our payments. And this committee that I'm on says, oh, we'll just send them, just, um, you know, send off the normal letter that we send off to everybody. And I said, no, no, those, those women, I've been there and they've put their heart and soul into writing to us and taking the time out of their day to write to us. I want to show some empathy and some compassion and some understanding for where they're at. And I will not put my name to a letter uh, that is just an automated response. And so that committee has now changed the way they respond to our, to people. <laughs> <laughs> to, and it's like, really? You need so, me to so, tell look, you that? Despite despite all your frustrations and despite what a you know what's a seemingly madhouse um, parliament is and particularly the, the Senate, um do you do you feel like you do you feel like you're having an impact? Do you feel like um, okay, I've made the right decision to go in here because I can actually yes. do some things? Yes, absolutely. Right, uh, and that's why I get up every day and continue to do it because uh, I have the support of my people, which gives me the permission. And I also have a lot of support from allies out there and and non-Aboriginal people, elders uh, that. You know, uh, are saying you know you're saying what we want you to say, and and I do that checking in, and I relay that back into the parliament, and mm. people do listen, and I have lots of really good conversations with 
Malcolm Roberts from One Nation, like Matt Canavan from Little Nat, like people you would not – absolutely. I would love to be a fly on the wall for those conversations. <laughs> oh, Matt Canavan and I have the best chat, best yarn. Wow. What are you talking yeah. about? Um, we talk about minerals, actually, um, okay. and his support for – traditional owners to own mineral rights and I because I nearly fell off my chair when he said it, and I said what 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 did you say and he said I I would support Aboriginal people having mineral rights why you know like the companies are all making this money it should belong to the the Aboriginal the traditional owners and I said Matt are you feeling all right today are you serious <laughs> He hasn't got too much soot in his ears, has he? Well, I mean, that honestly, that's what he said. And I said, I want to keep talking to you about this. I'm, I'm interested in this idea. Uh, and he said, oh, but, you know, my party wouldn't support it and the Libs won't support it. So it's just an idea, a mad idea that I have. But I think it would be a good thing for the Indigenous people. And I said, um, I, won't, I can't swear, but I did swear at that time. <laughs> And I was just perplexed. So we need people like me and people, you know, any other blackfella that wants to put their hand up. These are the conversations that we can have with anybody. And, yes, we fight in the in the public domain, and I call them out in the public domain, but I have a um, respectable relationship with most of those politicians in that place. Not all, it is- most. Yes, I can. I'm, I'm, a sh- I'm, I'm sure that it's not all. Um, I won't name names, but um, it is um, 29 to 8. You're listening to the mission. I'm speaking with Senator Lydia Thorpe about a whole range of matters, including closing the gap. Uh, let's move on to um, <clears throat> Victoria, Senator. Um, uh, we call ourselves the so-called progressive state, and I keep harping on about that on this particular show. But, of course, we can't call ourselves the progressive state when the number of Aboriginal prison Aboriginal women in prison has risen 174% over the period from 2010 to 2000, uh, 2020, can we? No. No. And that, I mean, how can you treat you with anybody who's locking up your women? Uh, that's what is being asked of us right now. Uh, and, you know, more than half of those women have not even been sentenced for a crime and most of those women have babies and they've been removed. So, you know, whilst they're sitting in maximum security prison, mind you, because there hasn't been a remand centre for women either, and this is not mm. just black women, it's white women too. Yep. They sit in a maximum security prison where they can't have their babies and they're waiting to be sentenced. So that's that's a crime in itself, I believe. So this shouldn't be happening when uh, the government wants to talk about treaty. I don't know what treaty looks like for this state. I really don't. I'm, I've always been sceptical because it had too much bureaucratic and government influence from the beginning and it has denied so many clans and nations across the state. Um, but I have uh, said to the treaty co-chairs that I... I'm happy to work with them, 
if they get the 38 nations around the table, I will help them to be, you know, to be better. I want them to be better. I want this to work, but mm-hmm. we've got to keep this government to account um, because, you know, the logging, the selling off of Crown land, the incarceration rates of our children and of our women and of our men and the deaths in custody here, it really gives us not much to uh, look forward to, really, does it? What what sort of response did you get from from the co-chairs around um, expanding the 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 membership of uh, the assembly to to thirty eight traditional owner groups? What what did they say? Uh, they did say that they're working through that right now mm-hmm. as a as a commission or as an assembly. Yep. So um, yeah, and look, I know that those thirty eight nations are are really um, calling for their voices to be heard and for their seat at the table. So that's a work in progress as we speak. But I think uh, the way the government has filtered the funds doesn't allow that process to be be done uh, in a way that it should be done. So that's also a risk that's happening right now. Clans and nations should be able to decide how they meet together how they make their decisions together. It shouldn't be um, under a government guideline or, um, you know, a a colonial concept of what they think is representation. Yeah, right. Um, So we'll keep an eye on that as a work in progress. It's a very complicated, um, tough space uh, to be in and there's a lot of work that um, will continue to go on to make sure that uh, there's a best outcome for for mob as possible. And I know that you'll be part of that discussion, Lydia. Um, Let's just move on to um, another thing that um, I'm personally flabbergasted by and I'm sure that uh, many of other people are, are flabbergasted by, but the Victorian government has given consent for a gas company to produce gas extracted from beneath a national park in uh, the southwest of Victoria near the Twelve Apostles. Near, near the Twelve mm-hmm. Apostles. Um, Lydia Thorpe, what's your reaction to that, to that announcement? Ecocide, genocide, no consent from the Karay Wurrung people, whom I'm a part of as a traditional owner. My ancestors would never have allowed for this to happen. My mother does not consent. My family do not consent. And this is a crime about to be committed by the Andrews government, um, also backed up by the federal government. This comes after the IPCC report that talks about action on climate change and we've we've just been sidelined and disrespected uh, as we always have been by these governments, and we're in a climate catastrophe, crisis, whatever you want to call it, how dare they? And they will have one of the biggest fights they've ever seen on their hands, and I urge all uh, you listeners out there that we will set up a camp on my country to protect that area we will have. We need boats to get out there. We need all uh, people on board to help fight this, um, because this is just an, an act of um, omnicide, which is the ultimate. Uh, the government has said that uh, the offshore drilling is subject to strict environmental and safety regulations led by 
uh, a national uh, authority. Uh, obviously, you don't think that those guidelines are um, worth the paper they're written on? No, not at all. Uh, let's see them. Who'd they speak to? What consent process did they go through? What public scrutiny was around for those guidelines? Um, let's see them because I don't trust them and no piece of paper with anything written on it will ever give consent to destroy an area that we've protected and preserved for thousands of generations and uh, that, you know, we now have a movement in this country that will uh, stand and fight against any piece of paper that allows um, manufactured consent like this is. Like yeah, I think, uh, I, I think it's safe to say that <clears throat> collectively as a mob, we've never been better organised in terms of addressing uh, issues like this. So we'll stay in touch around that. And this is one of the reasons why um, you're organising a truth-telling and treaty yarning circle uh, for this Thursday, the 19th of August, via Zoom at 7pm, uh, which uh, listeners can register through uh, your social media platforms. Um, you'll be yep. speaking with um, academics and activists such as uh, Celeste Little, Michael Anderson and Michael Mansell and uh, Dorinda Cox. Uh, tell us a bit about uh, what that what that evening's about. Well, treaty is the way forward for this nation. We need to mature as a nation. We need to bring this country together. We are one of only a couple of Commonwealth countries around the world that does not have a treaty with its first people. We need to acknowledge and repair what has happened. Uh, we need to sort the present injustices and we need to care for country. And a treaty can be all of this. The treaty is a blank canvas and we have the opportunity as a nation to have the treaty of the 21st century. So we learn from treaties around the world. We know that they can be broken, but we all now, black and white, and everybody else can be part of bringing this country forward. We're, we're learning from COVID how to look after each other better. Well, we've been doing that since the beginning of time. So we need to bring those um, principles into a treaty that can take us all forward and uh, address climate change, address inequality and um, unite this country so we have something to celebrate together. Well, it should be a fascinating discussion. Like I said, if you want to register for, uh, via, the, via Zoom, um, the Truth Telling and Treaty Circle, just go to uh, uh, Lydia, Lydia Thorpe's various uh, social media sites and you'll find that the links uh, are there. Um, that'll be 7pm Thursday, the 19th of August, which is this Thursday. Um, Senator, thank you very much for uh, coming on the show once again. Uh, let's stay in touch. Um, good luck fighting the fight up there in Canberra when you uh, eventually get back up there. Um, yeah. Um, good luck with the peanut butter toast. And um, thank you so much for your time this evening. My pleasure. Stay deadly and I'll always uh, be happy to come back to the old mesh. <laughs> this is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. 
If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Here we are again on the mission. I'll unmute myself. And it is time to speak to our second guest. Now, as I mentioned at the top of the show, the vaccine rollout continues on, um, surely and sh- surely but slowly, but um, it's picking up pace. And uh, we know that numbers look like nationally and on a state basis, but for the Aboriginal community, what does the rollout actually look like uh, on the ground? Well, someone who was in a very good position to give us an insight into this is Lionel Austin. Lionel is the manager of the Preventative Health Unit at the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service and is well-placed to fill us in on the tremendous work VARS has got underway to ensure our mob remains safe during this tiresome and lengthy pandemic. Uh, Lionel, welcome to the mission. It's good to speak with you again. Uh, Good evening, Daniel. Long time no here. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a while. Um, first of all, how is the um, vaccine rollout going out uh, in VARS? How's it going at the moment? Yeah, so from a, a Victorian Aboriginal Health Service perspective, um, we've been going really, really good. Uh, we're averaging around about 50 to 60 vaccinations a day, but that's from just a general booking system. And then when we have our walk-in um, clinics, which is, happens twice a, a week, uh, on a Tuesday evening and a Saturday as well. Just the, the Saturday just gone, um, we had over 100 um, people walked in from the community and, and got their um, vaccination. So it was a, it was really humbling to see, you know, community coming in and getting their um, vaccine. And, um, and it's really rewarding too to see, you know, certain community members who I know personally um, who were more hesitant at the start, but um, now um, those particular people are slowly coming in. I think, um, you know, organisations like VARS um, and a lot of the other HAs around the state have done a fantastic job of getting the public um, health message there. And, it's you know, it's, it's really great to hear that it's beginning to, to pay dividends. Um, has the lockdown affected the rollout? Uh, hasn't really impacted our rollout. Um, people are still coming in um, to get their vac- uh, vaccinations, and it is uh, uh, one of the five requirements that you are allowed to exit your house. Um, if you need that. to get a COVID test, and or if you need to get a, um, a COVID vaccination. So, no, we haven't seen much um, much of a, an impact in terms of the, the the lockdown. I think the only the only impact is just the the, the morale. I would say in the community because the, the, with the current lockdown, I think that's the only impact that's currently happening. But from a logistical, um, operational point of view, in terms of the the vaccines, um, no, we, we haven't had much um, dramas yet in this lockdown, and even the, the uh, prior to this lockdown as well. So, um, no, it's it's actually really good seeing people still coming in. Um, in their vaccinations, and given the, the current circumstances that uh, Melbourne's in at the moment. Well, that's that's fantastic to hear. You mentioned that there was um, a, an initial hesitancy from from some of our community members, is um, and, and that has gone by the wayside for those people. Are you still sensing that there's much hesitancy about the place? Uh, yes, I won't lie to you. There is um, quite of a, um, a hesitancy. Um, around the vaccine. I wouldn't say the majority of the people, we did a bit of a kind of a uh, mini survey to the community, and plus I've done my own um, 
ring around of the community who I know um, are quite public with their positions around vaccines. Um, and, you know, so what VARS has done and even myself is that we want to know what's the, the, the current climate in the community around um, vaccinations. And uh, there was a big, um, um, you know, identified in terms of people being hesitant about being the vaccines, but they didn't say they weren't anti-vaxxers. It was just more of the uh, sitting on the fence, um, cautionary type of approach. And, and we kind of predicted this will happen even at the start of the um, the vaccination rollout. Uh, roll so we've actually broken up the community into three different groups, believe it or not. So the first group is the willing group, which is the, the ones who um, who uh, want to come forward and get their vaccinations. Um, you know, they're confident with the vaccines and don't need much convincing to those particular um, group. So we knew that that will be a task on its own. So that took us around about, you know, generally over up to four months to get the majority of that group to get vaccinated. Then the second group is the defensivists, what we call them. Yep. It is pretty much they're sitting on the fence and they haven't made a, a, a definitive decision yet about their, if they should get their vaccinations. But these fences, majority of them are just more uh, just observing the willing group um, and see if there's any, you know, um, Knock-on effect. You know, yeah, on effect and all that stuff. So yep. what we're seeing now is that the defences are now going to pretty much take up the majority of our vaccinations from August to October now. So, And we kind of predicted that that's what's going to happen. And obviously the third group is the, the resistant group, which is the ones who don't want the vaccine. Um, you know, they have their own reasons why they don't want the vaccines, and we respect their decisions. But at the same time, we don't push that particular group aside. We still want to engage with that particular group. And yep. at the end of the day, they're still community members. So we don't say that, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're wackos or nothing like that. No, absolutely not. We still engage with that particular group who don't want the vaccine. And, you know, and at the same time, you know, they're still community members. So it's still our duty to engage with them and provide those health messages um, when needed and all that stuff. So that's pretty much the, the strategy that the Victorian Aboriginal Service have been doing, looking at the community in those in those three particular groups. So um, I would say, yeah, from August to now, it's all defensive. This will probably now move forward and come and get their vaccines because their observations from the willing group. Yeah, I mean, and hopefully, hopefully, again, once the fencers get their opportunity to get their vaccine, hopefully that will impact on on the people that are that are really hesitant or just don't want want that. Um, uh, what have I you noticed across? The, sorry, go on, go on, Lionel. Yep. In saying that too, it, it aligns with the campaigns and the communications and the, pro, the promotions that we're doing with the community as well too. So. We know that our biggest cohort of people will be those fencing groups. Um, and our main thing is trying to, you know, um, showcase that there's other community members have come forward, got their vaccinations, and, you know, nothing has happened to those particular people, you know, from their vaccinations and all that stuff. So, and I think the, the, the very, the core foundation of our communications is, is utilising our own community members to, to push the message as well. So, um, yeah. and we've seen a really good support from the community, you know, when they come into the Victorian Aboriginal Service to get their vaccination, they, they go on their own social media profiles and, you know, posting up they just being vaccinated yeah. and particularly getting vaccinated at the Victorian Aboriginal Service. So you're seeing this um, kind of this um, community-driven-led 
um, campaign that, yes, the bar's kicked it off, but it's actually what's really rewarding is seeing community kind of take an ownership of the campaign and driving that message back to the community and pretty much showing that positive reinforcement type of engagement. How much of the hesitancy is around the the uh, AstraZeneca issue as opposed to yep. um, the, the Pfizer issue? Are people waiting for Pfizer and Moderna, or or like uh, <laughs> how many how many are? I guess I'm asking how many are dead set against vaccinations, and how many are hesitant because <clears throat> they don't want a particular yep. vaccine. Look, there is um, there is a quite a you know the, there is community members who are dead set against the vaccinations, and you know we can discuss the politics too behind the vaccines as well. So um, we don't we don't think there's a, a huge lot of um, community members. We 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 honestly believe it's a very small small percentage of community members who are considered, you know, um, in that resistant group who don't want the um, don't want the vaccine. They have their own general, um, you know, own reasons why they don't want it. Um, so we don't think it's going to be a major problem for us from a, a community-controlled um, health service um, in terms of rolling it out. Um, our main thing is just focus on the ones who do want it, but also engage with the ones who are a bit, a bit you know, um and are and about um, coming forward to get their vaccinations. We know, we, you know, with the, um, we know the ones that who are very hesitant. Um, you know, we can do as much as we can to engage with them, but they're dead certain about their decision about coming forward to get their vaccination. So, uh, again, it's a very, very small percentage of those particular of those people. And But like I said before, we don't disengage with them. We still continue to engage with those people because they're still community members at the end of the day. Yeah, and we know that um, in this space, uh, derision does not work. So you've got to keep the conversation uh, up and happening. Um, and that sounds like you're doing a, a fantastic job of, of, of that. Um, if mob want to get their jab through Vars Lionel, how, how do people um, get that organised? Um, yeah, just so before I talk about how to get the vaccination, just one more thing about the hesitancy aspect sure. is the... Um, the other he- the reasons why people are hesitant is that um, people just have concerns about the development of the vaccine. So they're just a bit conscious about, you know, they're just, um, you know, just uh, a bit worried about the, the development and the process of these vaccines. So uh, the majority of community members uh, have said that to us at VARS, that they just want to see if the vaccine is safe. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it's nothing around, you know, the the, the anti-vaccine, you know, rhetoric or the ideology. It's none of that stuff. It's more about the caution of the development and the process of the vaccine itself. That's right. the only, that's the main concern from our community members is that they feel that it's a quick uh, job and it's rolled out very quickly without proper processes and scrutiny attached with the trials and all that stuff. So that's the, that's the general concern with the community about, um, about the hesitancy but in terms of people want to get vaccinated at the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service, um, so any uh, Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person over the age of 12 um, can actually come into VARS and, uh, and get their vaccination uh, through VARS. Um, so we have two sites that offer uh, vaccinations. Our Fitzroy Clinic, uh, which is based on Nicholson Street, uh, just simply yep. call 94193000 and press 1 and uh, the medical uh, receptionists are more happy to, to take your booking. Um, but if you 
but we also have a second clinic out in the northern suburbs, which is Epping, and you can contact them on 8593-3920. That's 8593-3920, and they also can do vaccinations um, at Epping. We do offer both AstraZeneca and Pfizer as well, mm-hmm. and with the uptake with Pfizer, Pfizer is the most um, demand vaccine from the Victorian yep. Health Service perspective. Unfortunately, AstraZeneca is not the you know the, the hottest product at the moment, and um, and obviously we've been you know, with the um, unfortunate you know with the media stories uh, aligned with AstraZeneca has put a, a, dent, a, a dent and an impact in terms of that uptake within the community here in um, Melbourne and Victoria. But no doubt, the the greater demand for Pfizer is there um, is the one that everyone really wants and. Um, Fortunately, we're happy. Uh, we we do provide Pfizer for our community. So um, okay. So yeah. if you're if you're mob out there and you want to um, go and get your jab, uh, you can go to Fitzroy and and, and call them nine four one nine three thousand and press one to get through to there. And if you are um, in the Epping area, you want to go there. It's eight five nine three three nine two zero. I will put those numbers online as part of the segmented um, interview for this. Um, Time's uh, running out, Talon, but thank you so much for, for your time and it'd be good to catch up with you at some point and um, have a yarn about all sorts of things. Um, but for the time being, thanks so much for your time. Uh, thanks for the opportunity, Daniel, and um, thanks um, to your listeners as well. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>